Hey, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Put a finger there or a pencil or something and also flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And while you're turning, I wanted to tell you that Brenda and I every winter for the last dozen years or so have been going down to Florida. We have a dear, dear, dear friend who has a home uh, that's south of Tampa Bay and it's, it's, it's west, so south and west of Tampa Bay. And it's on a, actually on a long island called Longboat Key. Uh, the, the island is, is, is about 20 miles that stretches from, from point to point, running north and south. And at its widest point, it's, it's only about a quarter of a mile wide. It narrows down, I mean, to just a couple hundred feet in some places. Anyway, the picture window in the home where we stay looks over the Gulf of Mexico. With the waves that are, that are crashing and the pelicans that are literally I had never seen this before. Pelicans folding their wings and diving into the ocean for food. The, the, amazing, the amazing sunsets. It's, it's just really a great place to read, to write, and to relax. Now, for me personally, there's no place I feel closer to God than on a mountain, like on a, on a chairlift, on a ski, ski slope at the top of a mountain, or or at the seashore where I'm watching all of the power of the waves. And to have the opportunity to spend a few weeks in the winter unwinding in that remarkable place is, is really a, a blessing for us. And while we're in Florida, we, we, we have a church home. We have a church where we go to worship. Brenda and I never miss the opportunity to, to be in the Lord's house on Sunday. If we're here in our home church or if we're there or someplace else, we're, we always find a church. And we are very thankful for the church in Sarasota that opens up their doors and really just throws their arms open wide for us and encourages us, welcomes us to participate with them. Now, the drive to the church uh, takes us over a couple of bridges. Uh, you're on an island. So the first one is a, is a drawbridge, and it's separating Sarasota Bay from the Gulf of Mexico. And, and it's, it's kind of low to the ground, but that bridge goes up so, so boats can get in and out. And then when you drive through St. Armand Circle and you're kind of heading, heading east towards Sarasota, you go over this big, big, huge bridge. It takes you way up, way up in the air. I mean, you can see here in the picture that it allows boats to, to go under with some, with some pretty significant sails, and they, 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 they don't interrupt traffic at all. So, so, so we, we, um, we, we, we make that way over the two bridges, and then, and then as we're kind of skirting around the edge of, of Sarasota Bay, we come across this statue. Now, if, if you've if, if, if you feel like you've seen this before, chances are you probably, you probably have because the, the statue is created from an iconic picture that was uh, taken on Times Square on August 14, 1945. Here's that original picture. And a sailor by the name of George Mendonca or Mendonca was in a theater uh, on Times Square watching a movie when news of Japan's surrender at the end of World War II was announced, that it was all coming to an end. And the, the theater literally just was just cleared out, all the servicemen and everybody else, they ran into the street. And when George ran out of the theater, he found this unsuspecting nurse. Her name was Greta Zimmerman. And he grabbed her, leaned her back, and just laid a big old huge kiss on her. Now, the picture went viral. It was published just a week later in Life magazine and went literally around the country 
And it became a symbol, a symbol of the ecstatic joy that filled the heart of every American because World War II had finally come to an end. Now, our country, like every other country on the planet, has statues, memorials, dates on the calendar that commemorate significant moments in history. Here in the United States, we we celebrate the birthdays of significant people like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King. We have dates to remember where significant events occurred, dates like the 4th of July when we officially declared our independence from England and made ourselves our own independent country, or, or, or days like Thanksgiving or Christmas. We, we have dates to honor specific groups of people like Memorial Day, people who have died in service of their country in a war, or Veterans Day, people who have served their country, or, or Labor Day, those who, those who serve our country by working in their jobs and producing and providing for our country. The, 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 the dates are intended to be more than just something on the calendar, more than a, a, a day that we take off work, you know, a, a day where we get a sleep in, play some games, go to a movie, have a good time, eat some barbecue. No, they're intended for us to think, to remember, to reflect, to thank God for the blessings that have flown into our lives because of these people and these events. Every nation has a series of dates that they call to remembrance. And the nation of Israel, God's children, the Jews, were no different. The Old Testament is filled with information about the Jewish calendar. And that calendar was filled with holidays and festivals that depicted events that were celebrated annually by the nation of Israel. Now, one of the significant events on Israel's calendar was Passover. Next Sunday is Easter. It's the high day on the Christian calendar. It's, an, it's, 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 it's probably the most important date in Christendom. As important as Christmas is for us, the Advent, the day that Jesus was literally born on the earth, Easter is more important. Easter represents the reason Jesus came. Jesus came to die for our sins. And that substitutionary death on His behalf enables me, enables you to be back into a right relationship with God. Without Jesus, without his death, without his burial and his resurrection, we would all still be in our sins. We would die in our sins. And we would, because of that, be bound for hell, an eternity in hell. But thank God that he didn't want to end the story there. So Jesus came to die in our place. He suffered our punishment He literally took our punishment upon himself. He paid for our sins so we could be forgiven. And then, after he was laid in that tomb, three days later, he rose. He was victorious over death. Death could not hold him down. And his triumphant victory over death gives us hope. Gives us hope that we, too, can be raised from the dead because of the powerful blood of Jesus that was shed on our behalf. Listen, friends, we have a reason to be thankful this Easter season. In this time of turmoil, we have a reason to be thankful. And I hope you have accepted Jesus. I hope you've accepted his death and 
burial, and resurrection on your behalf. I hope that you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior. And if you've not, well, I want to encourage you to email me. In fact, here's my, here's my email address. I don't know that I've ever put it up on a screen before, but here it is. And I want to encourage you to write it down. And if you are in a position where you don't know Jesus and you, you need a Savior, you need for somebody to show you how to accept Him, how to make Him your Lord and Savior, then what I'm asking you to do is email me. In fact, as soon as we're done today, send me an email. Let me know your name, your, your, your telephone number, your email address. Let me know how I can get back in touch with you. I'll, I will do that. This will become the priority of my schedule in the following days. Now, Interestingly, the work of Jesus happened at a significant day on the Jewish calendar, the day they were celebrating Passover. As we begin our march to Easter, today would be Palm Sunday, if you're watching this on Sunday, April 5th. This is the day that Jesus entered triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem, and the people were crying, Hosanna. So as we're thinking about that day and then marching towards Easter, I want to encourage you to put this Easter season into perspective and to put Passover season into perspective. So let's begin by moving backwards. In fact, I want to move all the way back to the book of Exodus, chapters 11 and 12, and really I kind of even want to go back beyond there. And so as you're thinking about this in Exodus 11. Let's talk about the Passover. And and this really is the first picture of a substitute. After the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, man and God were separated. Our sin made it impossible to be in God's presence. God is perfect. He He is absolutely perfect. There is no fault in Him. He is righteous. And his righteousness will not allow anything that is unrighteous to be near him. As as sinful people, we are unrighteous, which drove Adam and Eve from God's presence. In fact, the minute, Genesis chapter 3, the second that Adam and Eve sinned, they were booted out of the garden, out of God's presence. And we have... We have all fallen suit. I wasn't there seven, eight, nine thousand years ago when that happened. But I've done the same thing. We, we have, I have, we have all broken God's commands, which means that all of us are in line to receive God's wrath, His punishment, which, by the way, is eternity in hell. But God was not satisfied with Genesis 3 being the end of the story. So the minute Adam and Eve sinned, God announced His plan. And his plan was recorded in Genesis chapter 3.15, where God says, he's speaking to Satan here, and he says, I'm going to put enmity, I'm going to put hatred between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, He will crush your head. You're going to strike his heel, he will crush your head. God's promise right here is that one is coming. One is coming. This is this is a Messiah. This is the first, the the what would be called the proto-evangelum, the, the first gospel. This is, this is God announcing what he's going to do. One is coming. Satan, you're going to work. You, 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 you are going to strike him on the, you're going to strike, strike him, but what he's going to do is he's going to crush your head. The coming of the Messiah is the narrative from this point forward, Genesis 3 forward, of the Old Testament. Genesis 3, God immediately began to prepare the way, and that preparation began with a man 
by the name of Abraham. Genesis 12, God made a simple call to this pagan man living in a pagan country. And God reached out to him, spoke to him, and what God was asking him to do was simply to move. God said, I want you to get up, Abraham, and I want you to move to the place that I will show you. And if you will do that, if you will do what I'm asking you to do, then here's what I'm going to do. God says, I will bless you. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. Now this, all the people being blessed, this is messianic. This is a further statement that was going on from Genesis chapter 3.15. This one is coming that is going to crush the head of the serpent. And Abraham is now being told that this one is going to come for all the people of the earth so that they can be blessed. Abraham was faithful. Abraham did exactly what God asked him to do. He moved. Now, a few years later, none of the promises had come to fruition. In fact, Abraham's wife was still barren. He had not received the promised land Palestine, Israel is his land of inheritance. And he was a bit sideways. And he was wondering aloud about all these promised blessings that God had given to him. And God responded. He, he's, he said the promises Abraham had received were actually going to be a long time in the making. Here's what God said. Genesis 15, verse 13. The Lord said to him, Know for certain, Abraham, that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years, but I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. God goes on in verse 15. You, you, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, right here to, to this land, Palestine. They will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God was working on many different levels. Palestine wasn't ready to be taken. Abraham's here. The family's going to be gone. They're going to come back. Now, you, you know the story. It begins to unfold. Several years later, Abraham has a son. As God said, Abraham's 100. His wife's 90. They have a son. They name him Isaac. Laughter. And then Isaac, down the road, has twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau was actually the older, which by all rights meant that he should have been the one that the promise was going through. But God, for whatever reason, chose the younger of the twin boys. Jacob, the younger, was, was chosen to be the father of 12 sons. Now, down the road, this son, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, is changed to the name Israel. And those 12 boys, those 12 sons, became known as the 12 sons of or the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those boys, Joseph, was his father's favorite son, born to his favorite wife. Israel doted on the boy, which, as you might imagine, made all the other brothers seethe with jealousy. They hated this brother with a passion. And in an opportune moment, they grabbed their brother, sold him to a group of Midianite traders, and then told their father that the boy had been killed by some ferocious animal. At 17 years of age, Joseph wound up in the land of Egypt. The Midianite traders sold him to a man by the name of Potiphar, who was a, an official in Pharaoh's kingdom. 
He became a slave in Potiphar's house. He was there for some time, but, but, but pretty quickly, Potiphar's wife took notice of him, wanted to have a sexual relationship with him. Joseph declined, and so she falsely accused him of raping her, and as a result, he was thrown into prison. And that's where he languished until he was 30 years old. Think about this, 17 to 30, his entire young adult years taken away from him. And then... Pharaoh had a dream that changed history. None of the wise men in Egypt were able to tell Pharaoh what the name, what the dream meant. He had called them all in. They, they lifted up their hands. They, they didn't know. But then Pharaoh's cupbearer remembered that there was a man down in the dungeons who could interpret dreams. His name was Joseph. Very quickly, Joseph found himself at the cupbearer's encouragement to Pharaoh, standing before the monarch, the most powerful man on the planet, being told this dream. And the question is, can you tell me what it means? Joseph said, I can't, but God can. And then he very quickly told Pharaoh that what it all meant. Seven years of plenty were ahead, and then they were going to be followed by seven years of famine. Joseph encouraged Pharaoh to put a wise man in charge of the land, store up grain during these seven years of plenty so that when the seven years of disaster came, they, they, they had all the food that they needed. Pharaoh chose Joseph. He said, you're the man. You understand the dream. You're the one interpret. You're the man. And so Joseph went from the dungeons to the number two guy in charge of all of Egypt. They, seven years worth of, worth of time, they, they, they took a big piece of that bumper crop and they stored it. So much grain that all the storage houses were filled and overflowing. They stopped counting. They had so much grain. And then the famine hit. And two years into the famine, when it was in full swing, his brothers showed up from Palestine to come looking for grain. They had heard that Egypt had it and here they showed up. Joseph sees his brothers, immediately recognizes them. They have no idea who they're looking at. I mean, think about it, 22 years has gone by. They, they thought their brother was dead. They didn't think to see him in this position. When they found out who he was, they were scared to death. Joseph told him all was well. He had forgiven them, and God had moved. And then we turn the page with this family all moving to Egypt and living in favor in the land of Egypt and living out this, living out this, uh, this famine and then staying there literally for the next 400 years. And that's when we turn the page to Exodus. Exodus chapter 1-8 says that a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power. And from that point forward, things were miserable for the Israelites. The word of God to Abraham back in Genesis 15 were actually being fulfilled. They're going to be, they're going to be slaves in a land where they're going to be mistreated. They had moved from a favored status with Pharaoh to a threat, and they were suddenly thrust into slavery, all three million of them. And that slavery went on for at least 100 years, probably longer. It was a horrible existence, and it drove the Israelites to do the only thing they could. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 says that, that they literally cried out to God. They cried out for help because of their slavery. And those, those prayers and those, the, those cries went straight up to God. And Exodus 2.24 tells us that God 
heard their groaning. The next part of God's plan was set in motion. He had turned Abraham into the nation, and now he needed to get this nation back to their land, to the land of Israel, the land of Palestine. And so God began to move. God called a man by the name of Moses. You can read all about it in Exodus 3 through 4. He had committed murder. He was an Israelite that had been put in a basket, floated. Pharaoh's daughter found him. His his parents were unwilling to, to murder him, to kill him as a baby. Pharaoh's daughter raised him. He became like the, the son or the grandson of Pharaoh. And now he's murdered a man when he finds out who he really is and he's run for his life. It's, it's 80 years later, and, uh, or it's 40 years later, he's, he's now 80 years of age when God comes calling. God calls in a burning bush. And he says, well, what I want you to do is I, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to stand before Pharaoh and I want you to tell him to let my people go. So Moses did, he went home. He went home. He went back to Egypt to make the plea to Pharaoh, let my, let my people go. God says, you can read all about it in Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and Exodus chapter 7 and 8. Pharaoh, who was probably Moses' half-brother by adoption, uh, thought the whole request was comical. I mean, there, there's no way that a monarch is going to give up three million slaves who are building for him for free. So he refused. And when Pharaoh refused, God unleashed plagues that destroyed the land of Egypt. And you, you can read all about that in Exodus 7, verse 14, into chapter 12, verse 31. The purpose of the plagues? Well, Pharaoh had asked... He wanted to know in chapter 5, verse 2, who God was, that he should listen to him. See, Pharaoh himself thought he was a God. The plagues answered that question. Exodus chapter 7, verse 5 says that the plagues were given to make this definitive statement. God is the Lord. He's the boss. He's the master. He's in charge. And systematically, over the course of the next 12 months, the plagues were unleashed. And they devastated, literally devastated the land of Egypt. And on top of that, they destroyed the gods of Egypt because the gods, these false gods of Egypt, had no ability to, to, see, to see Egypt through, to, to make Egypt strong. They all bowed to the true God. And it all led to the culmination, which was the tenth plague. And the tenth plague was death. Death to the firstborn. God was going to bring a destroyer, a death angel, to the land of Egypt. This death angel would enter into every house and kill the firstborn. That would be the firstborn, that would be the firstborn sons. It would also be the firstborn animals. Exodus 11, 4 and 5 tells us all about this. But there was a way to be saved from the death blow. And, the, and salvation came through blood, the blood of the Passover lamb. The blood of this lamb would serve as protection of the family. Exodus chapter 12. God gave instructions that a special meal would be prepared. Pick pick a a one-year-old lamb without blemish. Pick it several days in advance. And then at the appropriate time, at the appropriate day, you will slaughter that lamb. And you will prepare this meal. And you will eat it behind closed doors. But before all of that is done, you will take blood from this lamb... You will will take a hyssop reed and you will dip it into the blood and then you will take that blood and you will 
you will put it on the doorposts of the house, both the sides and the upper. I mean, what I want you to see here, friends, is the, is the picture of a cross. And when the death angel would come to these doors where the blood was on them, the death angel would literally pass over that house and move on to the next house. Now, I want you to get this picture. The blood was a covering. When you were housed under the blood or behind the blood of that innocent lamb who was sacrificed for your benefit, you were safe from death. And it all happened exactly as God said. At midnight, we read at the close of Exodus chapter 12 that the death angel entered into Egypt. And the firstborn of Pharaoh, all the way down to the firstborn of the man who was in Pharaoh's dungeon, along with the firstborn of all the livestock, they were struck down. It was a loud wailing in Egypt. And Pharaoh summoned Moses into the middle of the night, brought him into his palace, and in defeat said in Exodus chapter 12, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, leave, get out, go, worship the Lord as you have requested, take your flocks, take them, take your herds as you have said, and go. And, and by the way, would you bless me as you go? And to commemorate that historic event, the Passover feast became one of the most enduring and endearing of all the yearly feasts in Israel. For the next nearly 1,500 years, the Jews faithfully celebrated the Passover by reenacting this feast as it was laid out in Exodus chapter 12. And once the, they were in the promised land, and once that city of Jerusalem became the capital city, and once the temple was built in to Jerusalem, the Jews then began migrating in a pilgrimage to the holy city to celebrate the Passover. In fact, if you follow the ministry of Jesus, you see the same thing going on. Jesus, during the Gospels, during his three-and-a-half-year ministry, made pilgrimages to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And the fourth time he came in his ministry, he came to Jerusalem to die. Which brings us to this interesting second point, the transition. The transition. Jesus moved the viewpoint from Egypt to Golgotha. Matthew chapter 26, 17 opens up. The disciples are coming to Jesus and they're asking him, where do you want us to make preparations for the, for the Passover feast? Jesus told them, they, and, and they followed his instructions. And then the, the text just kind of immediately just skips forward to the upper room where Jesus and his followers had gathered for the meal. And then right in the middle of the meal, is, is, there, is there remembering and thinking back to Egypt and going through the process, right in the middle of this meal, Jesus switches things up. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, Jesus reaches into the table. While they were eating, Jesus reached out and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take it, eat it. This is my body. And as they consumed the bread, he went on. He, he reached to the, to the table. He took a cup of wine. 
he gave thanks. He offered it to them. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It, it was a significant moment. Jesus was taking Passover and completely shifting its meaning. For, for nearly 1,500 years, Jews met to celebrate that historical moment in Egypt. And from that point forward, the encouragement was to shift their attention away from Egypt and move it straight to Jesus and Golgotha. I'm amazed. As Jesus is helping the disciples to understand that was all done to set this up. Jesus said, I'm going to die for you. Remember my broken body. Remember my spilled blood. It was all done for you. These emblems signify my sacrifice. Do this in remembrance of me. The plan of God and the imagery elicited, I've just got to tell you, friends, is absolutely amazing. Think about it. The real plague, the real plague of the death angel is Satan. And it's his threat to throw all of us into hell because of our sin. John 10.10 10 says he's looking to steal, to kill, and destroy, and to do you damage. He's coming to bring harm. The Messiah, the Messiah would serve as the true Paschal Lamb. And he was even born in Bethlehem, the place where all the other lambs that were raised for sacrifice at the temple. He, that's where he was born. He was brought up. John the Baptist, when he first laid eyes on him in his ministry, said, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus was the real Paschal Lamb. You need to be covered by his blood because there's no other way to God. He is salvation. It's under, his, it's under the protection of his blood under the protection of his sacrifice, that we are healed. And, and here's the deal. When you get under that blood, death will pass over. It will pass over your life, and you, you will be saved. All those events in Egypt 1,500 years earlier were just a precursor to the true Passover lamb. He came to die. And don't you find it interesting that the day he actually died was on Passover. God moved history to this point, to this very day on the calendar, so it could all be fulfilled in Jesus. And so on that evening, in the upper room, the focus of the Passover feast shifted. And it came to a command, do this in remembrance of me. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the focal point of history. It isn't something that we should focus on once a year. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is something that should be occupying our minds every day. It should be what consumes us. It should be what drives us. Now, sadly, it's, it's easy as human beings to be caught up in all kinds of other things. Life just has a way of happening. And the cares of life, the issues, the pain, the struggles, the to-do list, our jobs can become our priority. And it can especially happen in seasons like the one that we're living in right now, the, the season of death and the coronavirus. We can be so caught up in the daily struggle that we miss the big picture, the truly important thing, the priority of our life. And the call of God is to not allow that to happen. 
So Jesus took a few simple emblems, some bread, some wine, some juice, and he commanded us to partake. Remember me. And what I want, what I want you to know is this. The first church set the example of what this should look like. Every time they gathered, whether that was weekly or daily, they remembered. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves. And they devoted themselves to four very specific things. First was the apostles' teaching. That means that they, they, the, the things that the disciples were being led through the Holy Spirit to say, those words that were led by the Holy Spirit through the apostles eventually became the Bible, the New, the New Testament, the Word of God that we hold today. They devoted themselves to the Word of God, and then they devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the church, to their relationships with one another. All through the New Testament, there's these one another passages about how to work how we're to treat one another, to, to love one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, greet one another. We're, to, we're here to help and support and encourage one another. We're to admonish one another, keep us all on the same track. We need each other. These first Christians devoted, they pressed themselves in to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. And this speaks of communion, to, to communion. When they got together, they were partaking and, and to prayer. They were intent on cultivating a deep-seated, intimate relationship with God. Nothing got in the way of these critically important things. And here's what Acts 2.46 says, just a few verses later. Every day, every day, these first Christians continued to meet in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. These, there was nothing casual about these first followers of Jesus. Their focus was centered on him. And the emblems signifying his sacrifice occupied their every gathering. Their every gathering, even if it was daily, included bread and wine and remembering, which answers an important question. Why do we here at our church serve communion weekly? Well, here's why. We serve weekly to follow the example of these first Christians. I tell you, the older I get, the more I'm amazed by the love and the grace and the mercy of God. And that amazing love of God ought to call me to remember his sacrifice and give thanks and then draw me deeper into relationship with him. Listen, you can never get enough of a good thing. And there's no better thing than the love of God is represented in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So, so pick up the emblems. P -p pick up the emblems. And, re and remember. And not just on Sundays. How about every day? Every day, remind yourself by taking the emblems and remembering him focusing on Him, prioritizing Him, and recommitting daily to walk with Him. And that leads to one last thought I want to put in front of you, and it's a warning. A warning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should not drink judgment upon ourselves. Now, many ask the question, if you take 
communion too often, isn't it possible for it to just become commonplace? I mean, is it possible, is it possible for it just to become meaningless? And the answer is yes, it could. It could just be something that you do that's rote, something that you just push through. But it doesn't have to be that way. And in fact, it shouldn't be that way. So instead of just taking the emblems and pushing them away so that we we only see them once a year so that it doesn't come commonplace, how about working instead on the other side to not allowing yourself to just slide through the process of taking them? Slow down. Force yourself to focus. Remember, give thanks, worship, and praise. And honestly, it's not just allowing the emblems to become commonplace that is dangerous. There are many other things that can cause us to take these emblems in a wrong way that will bring judgment upon ourselves. And that's where Paul focuses attention in 1 Corinthians 11. So Paul's encouragement is to never take the emblems lightly. And then he lists specifically three ways that we can do that. So how do we take them lightly? How do we bring judgment upon ourselves? Well, first, by allowing division to exist among us. Paul says in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Paul was writing to a very troubled church, and they were having infighting among themselves. And, and then they were coming and taking the Lord's Supper, and Paul said it shouldn't be. Before you take the Lord's Supper, you need to fix your divisions. If, you're, if you are out of whack with your brothers and sisters on a, on a horizontal plane, you will never be okay with God on a vertical plane. That's why Jesus said, if you're there offering your gift at the altar, drop it. If you remember that you have something against your brother or your sister, drop it and go and be reconciled. So listen, Christians, brothers and sisters, you can drink judgment upon yourself when when you are allowing disunity and division to be among you and another believer. God didn't come to build walls. He, he He came to break them down to tear them down. You do that, you tear them down. There's a second way you can drink judgment, and that's by abusing the feast. Paul says in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Now, that may sound crazy to you because you're thinking of this little cup with a little bit of juice in it that's not even wine, it's grape juice, and this little, this little wafer of bread, you're thinking, how in the world could I take that and you know, be gluttonous, or how could I take that and get drunk? Well, what you don't understand is how they used to take communion in Jesus' day. They would just bring in a loaf, and it would go on the table, and they would bring in a big goblet, and everybody would pull from the same loaf, and everybody would drink from the same goblet. If some guy got up first, and he made his way to the table, and maybe he hadn't eaten breakfast, he'd rip off a big old piece and gorge it down. And, 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 and same thing with that wine, you know, just a big old jug, clug, you know, I mean, slamming it down. And Paul's saying, it's not what this is about. This isn't about guzzling and, and, and grabbing and having a fill. This is about remembering. So if you're looking to fill your belly, or how about this? If you're looking to be satisfied in the flesh, this meal is not fleshly, it's spiritual. God's asking you to concentrate on your spirit. So if there's divisions, fix them. If you're too in tune with the flesh, then repent of it and get focused on the spirit. 
And a third way, Paul encourages us not to drink judgment on ourselves, and that's by not examining ourselves. He says in verse 28, a man ought to examine himself before he cuts, before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. When you come to this point of worship, it should be about deeply desiring to be like Jesus. And that means cleaning up your life, cleaning up your act. And the point here is repentance. This should be a point of reflection where you're taking note of of who you are and what you've been about. What's wrong? What's out of kilter in your relationship with God? Confess it, repent of it, walk away from it. Now, friends, we are officially entering into the season of Easter. It's going to be a different Easter this year. Don't let that turn your head. You can use this time in a powerful way to draw close to God. Take the bread. Take the cup. Remember back to Egypt in Exodus 11 and 12 and see that feast moving forward to Jesus, the true Paschal Lamb, who gave his life as a ransom for many. Take the cup. Take the bread. Remember his body. Remember his blood. Do this in remembrance of me. There is nothing better that you can do this Easter season than focus your head, your heart, your mind, and your soul, your entire being on Jesus and to encourage those in your family, those around you, to do exactly the same. Hey, bow your heads with me in prayer. Would you do that? Father, we're grateful. Grateful for your plan grateful for your vision. Father, grateful for how you unleashed all of this out over the years, the millennium of history. Grateful for how you planned to bring the Messiah, how he came and how he fulfilled all the pieces and all the pictures of the Old Testament and how he actually is the one who makes us right and clean. Father, we're grateful, beyond grateful for his body, beyond grateful for his blood, beyond grateful for his willingness to sacrifice himself, to give, beyond grateful that he would do it for us. And so, Father, as we enter into this season of grace, may our eyes be open, may our ears be attentive, may our minds be focused, and, Father, may our lives be drawn more closely to you as we take these emblems and do it in remembrance of you. And we lift it in the name of Jesus. Amen. As a family or as an individual, I want to encourage you when you shut this video down to together partake of the feast. In fact, maybe every day this week, partake of the feast. And as we move towards Easter, have a great week. God bless.